to uh, Dennis and others for preparing it, and for uh, uh, Roberta organizing it, and Sandy Steely organizing it, and sharing her, her testimony of how the Lord has worked uh, in her own life, or understanding the, uh, the, the God of the Bible and journaling, and integrating those two thoughts together, and how he's built her up through that and helped her and given her hope. Um, also, would like to mention that in your bulletin is an update from the Steve Myers family in South Africa um, to keep up with uh, their ministry there. And uh, my wife will shortly begin getting out a, a, a list of um, sign up for meals for Olivia here, so Sam Pease doesn't starve. Uh, and uh, Olivia uh, making meals that's a that's alleviated. Um, so. Uh, ladies, just be aware of that. I think more information will be coming. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. It was written by Dwight D. Eisenhower shortly before the Normandy D-Day invasion. The planning was called Operation Overlord, and it was a name assigned to the large-scale plans to invade France. It was divided up into several phases. The first phase... The amphibious invasion uh, was to establish a secure foothold, and that was codenamed Operation Neptune. After that, the next phase in order to prepare for that was a bombing campaign, codenamed Operation Point Blank, to target German aircraft, production, full supplies, airfields, uh, infrastructure, roads, rail links, to cut off the north from France and make it more difficult for the Germans to bring in reinforcements. They spread out these attacks so as to throw off the Germans to not clue them in onto where the invasion was going to be. They divided the coastline of Normandy, France into 17 sectors with code names using from left to right, from east to west, a spelling alphabet from Abel to Omaha to Roger to Sword, etc. They added eight further sectors when the invasion extended to include Utah. Uh, uh, the section of Utah there on the peninsula. Divided the beaches into colors green, red, and white. And allied planners, led by Dwight D. Eisenhower, <coughs> would precede these amphibious landings with airborne tr- drops, dropping troops on the eastern flank to secure some of the bridges in, north of, uh, in the north area of France. The initial goal was to capture certain towns in France and set up strongholds there. The Americans were assigned to land on Utah and Omaha in Normandy. They were to cut off the peninsula and capture the port facilities. The British at Sword and Gold Beaches and the Canadians at Juneau were to capture a certain town and form a front line in order to protect the American flank and establish airfields. The Allied armies would then swing left to advance toward the river. By May 1944, and planning for this event that happened June 6, 1944, as probably you're familiar with, a million and a half American troops arrived in the United Kingdom. Most were housed in temporary camps, or they're ready to move across the English Channel to France to the western section of the landing zone. 
There is a complex system called the movement control that assured that men and vehicles left on schedule from 20 departure points. Some men had to board their craft nearly a week before the D-Day invasion. Their ships met at a rendezvous point named Piccadilly Circus. Southeast of the Isle of Wight, they stumbled into convoys across the channel. Minesweepers began clearing lanes for the ships on June 5th, 1944. And 1,000 bombers left before dawn to attack and pummel the coastal defenses. Some 1,200 aircraft departed England just before midnight to transport three airborne divisions to their drop zones behind enemy lines several hours before the beach landings. The most famous of these being the American 82nd and 101st. <coughs> Some 132,000 men were transported by sea on D-Day, and a further 24,000 would come by air. The Navy began their bombardment from their battleships, uh, for about an hour from five battleships, 20 cruisers, 65 destroyers, and two monitors. And then infantry began arriving on the beaches at around 6.30 that morning, June 6, 1944. What a massive invasion. What a plan that had to go into this. What scheming and strategy went into this. And yet it pales in comparison to the great task of this of the scheming and strategizing that the early church through the leadership of the Apostle Paul and his apostolic team did and changing the world for the gospel. You see, we're coming to the end of the book of Titus. In the book of Titus here, we usually pass over these personal notes that Paul gives to the people that he's trying to keep in contact with. And we kind of look at them though as, as though Paul was, was, was just saying hi and bye to people. But when we really look at what is in the ends of these letters that Paul writes, they are there to establish a strategy, establish a church for the furtherance and advancement of the gospel. It was less of a hi and goodbye to Aunt Mabel and to, and to friend Fred here, and more of instructions and connections with people who are partnered for the gospel. And I want you to, uh, to be able to see through the eyes of General Paul here. The scheming, the planning, the strategy, all for the common mission of Jesus Christ. See, our Lord in Matthew 28, 18-20 had told His apostles to go into all the world and to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit after they believe. And then to teach them how to obey what Jesus Christ has commanded. In Ephesians 4, 11-16, Paul tells the uh, the, the, the churches that they are, have been given gifts of offices of apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists in order to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry so that the church is built up as it speaks the truth and love and it is using all of its parts in order to maximize the effectiveness of the gospel and to build strong churches in order to take new ground. And in 2 Timothy 2, 2, Paul's last letter, before he leaves this earth, he tells Timothy, the things that I have taught you, I want you to teach and train other men who will be able to teach other men as well. And trust them with the gospel. You see, as we as individuals center our identity in Jesus Christ, it also means that we center our identity within the body of Jesus Christ, the church, for its advancement. 
You see, Paul's churches were sharing and they were brought to life by, they were animated by the same life-giving mission that propelled his apostolic mission. It wasn't like Paul started these churches and then, then kind of left them and, and, and they were disconnected from the mission of God. No, they were all partners and part of it. And the spiritual gifts of the body are all very distinct, aren't they? With you as all individuals. And the individual members of the body of Christ each have different responsibilities. But the whole is unified with its purpose and its activity. And in this material that Paul includes at the end of the book of Titus, it is not ancillary, it's not just a Passover. It is there so that, <coughs> excuse me, so that we understand that what we share in Christ is there so that we share Christ together. What we share in Christ together is there so that we share Christ together. Every Tuesday morning at uh, six in the morning at the Come Spring Diner, a group of young men and I uh, gather around the Word of God and uh, catch up on our on our lives and get into the uh, um, the message that the passage here for the coming sermon. And uh, we, as we read Titus three verses twelve through fifteen, uh, I asked them, uh, "What? How could you summarize this passage in a short sentence?" And uh, may have been uh, Jason Burgess who summarized it as, as mobilizing for the kingdom. Mobilizing for the kingdom. And I thought that was a very good summary here of what is going on in Titus chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Mobilizing for mission. And this morning I'd like to give you a message called, Let Our People Learn. Let Our People Learn. Let's turn to Titus chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. This morning as we wrap up this book. It has been such a rich uh, book. It is, it, is, it is very simple in many ways. It is very basic. It is very uh, clear. It establishes what is expected in the churches, in the life of our church, but yet it's so deep in its content with its descriptions of the gospel that is rooted in it. Titus chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. When I shall send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. Bring Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting to them or lacking to them. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. All that are with me salute you. Greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that we would um, see your desire for us not to be static, not to sit still, but to be mobile for your great mission. Lord, you have uh, given us a, a task, a command, but Lord, you have not just given us a task, a command, you've given us a strategy to follow here in order to see beachheads of the gospel planted and established and further ones go on from there all around the world. I pray, Lord, that uh, South Hope Community Church would be a, another Antioch, a church that is a, is, a, is a foundational church in getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. Thank you, Lord, for what you'll do through this, uh, through this chapter. I thank you for men like Paul, very gifted men, uh, who uh, use their gifts for the furtherance of Christ's kingdom. But Lord, we also thank you for the team of men that were built up by Paul.
the relationships that he invested in, and the, and the men from all walks of life who even used their um, vocations as platforms for the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As Paul here in this passage mobilizes for mission, I think we can see very clearly that there is a shared strategy. There is a shared strategy. Um, Paul's strategy here, just as the, the Eisenhower and his, and his team of men who planned for the invasion of Normandy, that was so massive here. Paul's strategy and Paul's work was not a half-hearted effort. There was thinking that went into the task. There were men and relationships he had invested in. There were assignments. There were, there were people who were one-minded in the partnership for the advancement of the gospel. And we saw, a uh, <coughs> uh, when we began this letter, this little island of Crete where the gospel had penetrated. And congregations had been built up. But then along the way, there were false teachers that had come in and distracted the church from its purpose with their errant teaching. And Paul says in Titus 1 verse 5, I want you to set in order to repair the things that are lacking, to bind up the broken things, to make them whole again. I want to set you to set in order the things that are lacking in the churches in Crete. And he says... Number one priority is to establish a team of pastors in every church. And then after right leadership comes right living among the body. Discipleship relationships in Titus chapter 2. So that the gospel is affirmed. It is, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is made beautiful to the watching world. So that the opponents of the gospel can say, I hate their message, but I can have nothing wrong, bad to say about them. The way they lived and intermingled and, and, uh, and respected their community and served it. And he connects it again back to the gospel in Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. Then in Titus 3, verses 1 and 2, he brings it up again. Be good citizens. Be dual citizens. Citizens of heaven, but citizens where you're at as well. And bring the, the, the life impact of being a citizen of heaven into where you live here on this planet. And your community, and your villages, and your cities, and your towns. And then he links it again to the gospel and says... Remember, this is where you once were, but Jesus brought you out of this, and this is now who you now are in Jesus. And he closes it here in Titus chapter 3 with this concept here after he said, Do not be a person who is divisive in your church here about the wrong things, but be a person who invests in the glory of God and the gospel. And in verses 12 through 15, he brings it back together again with this idea of being a people who are zealous of good works. So in these verses here, Paul says in verse 12, When I shall send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. I don't know if you can see it on the map or not, but Nicopolis there is above Corinth, and it was a place that would be better to, to be in the winter. Paul had some experiences of storms that blew up in the Mediterranean in the book of Acts near the end. And he knew what it was like to be on a ship when the weather was bad. And so Paul says, I'm going to go to Nicopolis. I'm going to winter there. And I can assure you that Paul's not going to go to Nicopolis to have nice strolls on the beach and pick up seashells. Paul's going to Nicopolis so that he can scheme. He can strategize. 
And he is moving west because his goal in Romans 15 is to build not on another man's foundation, but to go where the gospel has not been before. He is a true missionary spirit here. At the same time, he's very well balanced in understanding that the churches he is planting need to be strong and established. And he will not shortcut, shortcut or short circus their, 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 their foundation. And, and, and he will go back and write letters or send teams of men to establish these churches before he'll go on into areas that have not heard the gospel. Because he does not want to go and build on a sand foundation. He wants a solid rock. And he doesn't want to go and, and, and stretch himself thin and, 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 uh, and, and begin new churches if the ones that are the supporting and partnership churches here are dwindling, are weak, have flaws. And so in 2 Corinthians 1, he'll go until he wanted to go to Troas where there was an open door. But he says, no, even though there was an open door for the gospel, I'm going to send Titus back to you Corinthians so you guys get all shaped up again. Because otherwise I'm going to have to do the work twice. I'm going to have to go back and redo what I already laid there in, in, the, in the church at Corinth. And so, while he's in Nicopolis there, he says, well, I'm going to go to Nicopolis. Titus, I want you to come to me there. So that tells us a couple things. The first thing is this. Titus's time was limited, wasn't it, in Crete? His time was limited. There were things that he was expected to do during his term there, and of course they are laid out in Titus chapter 1, 2, and 3. He wanted Titus to come join him so that they could push on. He knew the importance of establishing the church, and, uh, but he knew that there were other, other places that still had not uh, heard the gospel and that motivated him. He says, I'm going to send Artemis to you or Tychicus. Tychicus we read about in the scripture. He goes to Ephesus, he goes to Colossae. Uh, he's introduced in the book of Acts. Artemis, we never hear uh, him before this particular verse here. But I want you to see, when, when Paul says, I'm going to send Artemis or Tychicus to you, you know what's behind that? Hours and hours of investment. Men he has invested in for the gospel. Men who he could now entrust to take care of these situations. We don't know who ended up coming, Artemis or Tychicus. Some think it was Artemis because Tychicus is mentioned as going other places. And so perhaps Artemis was the one who uh, uh, ended up going to, to Crete. But that, that, that's not the point. The point is this. Paul is building leaders. You see, Paul has a strategy, doesn't he? His strategy, we've gone over this several times here, is to evangelize strategic cities. To establish local churches, congregations, and then out of that to entrust the faithful men. Paul has built a team. These things didn't happen with a snap of the finger. And folks, real lasting uh, uh, traction in a God-centered, gospel-mobile movement takes time. Because it takes faithful men. And faithful men are not born, faithful men are made by the word of God. We need to understand that in our mission strategy for our own church. That it is not, uh, it is not a, a quick jerk of the wheel. It is rather a, a, a faithful trajectory over time. And God builds team members. It's encouraging to see that here. And God builds one-mindedness in the gospel. And God builds men who, who, because of their giftings, because of their callings, seem to emerge as people who can take on greater and greater responsibility. And folks, our measure of success in this church is not how many rear ends we have in our seats here. Our measure of success for God's church is 
are sending out to do the work of the ministry. Being faithful in that. Paul here, in this passage here, it seems kind of abrupt. He turns from these closing church-related instructions to these practical and personal instructions here, but he does so because this was the means that Paul maintains the mission network. He organizes movements essential to his effective ministry. And Paul was aware of the need to make plans during the winter season when he could not travel. And his choice of Nicopolis, back here in this slide here, his choice of Nicopolis puts him one step further west of where he wanted to ultimately go to Spain. He says in Romans 15, he's preached the gospel all the way up to Elycrium, which is uh, north of Nicopolis, but he wants to go west because of God's mandate to spread the gospel to the ends of the world. So first of all, I want you to see this morning that this isn't random stuff here at the end of Titus. This is a shared strategy. If God's kingdom in Christ is, 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 is a kingdom that the Holy Spirit works through and God is a God of order, there is a shared strategy. And the strategies of Paul, the strategies of the New Testament, we would, we would be much more wise to adopt rather than the methods um, uh, that change from culture to culture. To build on those principles. There is a shared strategy. Paul has a team of people who are behind these things. A strategy, a mentality, a task that they have organized under, and there is a shared strategy here. There's other men mentioned later on in the passage. Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey. And this just bears witness to the truth that these men were on the same page and God was using them for his great task. But not only that, there is secondly a shared Provision, a shared provision. Look in verse 13. He says, Bring Venus the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting to them, and let ours also, our people also, learn to maintain or practice good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. Paul says, To bring Zenus, the word bring there is the word, the word that means help send forward. Help send forward. It's a little debate here that word lawyer is used in the Gospels as referring to teachers of Moses' law here. And some have suggested maybe Zenus was a, was, a, was a converted Jewish teacher of the law. But his name is a Greek name, Zenus, and it means gift of Zeus. So I'm going to assume that he was saved out of a pagan culture here, gift of Zeus here, and that he was a legitimate Roman lawyer. Which is interesting because here is a man, um, by the way, this is the only mention of a real lawyer in the, in the whole scriptures as far as I understand, and it does show that there are good lawyers, right? Um, but this is a man who is using his vocation here for God's work. He's using his vocation for God's work. Um, Apollos was a teacher uh, that was that, that that was very eloquent, in the, and, and Luke describes him as one who is mighty in the scriptures. But he had some uh, teaching that needed to have more fulfillment to it. There were things that were lacking, and and, and Aquila and Priscilla, Paul's other teammates, take uh, 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 Apollos under their arm, and they show him more fully the way of the scriptures. And out of their care and discipleship of, of Apollos, he blossoms in his skills and abilities and talents, are used to build up the church. And he becomes a respected leader, a very helpful leader in the, in the, in the church at Corinth. So much so 
that the church at Corinth starts to take sides with people and put uh, their leaders and say, well, I'm, I follow Peter, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. <coughs> Apollos was probably a more gifted speaker than Paul was. Paul says in other passages he's not a very good speaker. Um, and in fact, the Corinthians uh, mock them for that. They say, Paul, you write this good letter, but you come and speak to us in person, you really stink. Paulus is very gifted in speaking. And Paul here could have been very jealous of a man like Apollos. But they are one-minded in their mission. And he will not let factions divide them. And so he says, provide for these men. Provide for them. Why? Because they are mobilizing for the mission. So there is a shared strategy here of establishing the churches. But there is a shared Provision, help send them forward. Give them aid along the journey. Titus, see that they have everything they need. Food, drink, place to rest, place to live. Um, whatever their needs were, Titus, make sure they have those, those means. And I want you to understand that when Paul says Titus, make sure you have those means, he doesn't necessarily mean that Titus has to do it all, right? Because the theme of this book over and over has been a gospel life that translates to fruit, bearing fruit, good works, good works. To see everything that they have need so they can do the work that is expected to build Jesus' church. And he says in verse 14, And let our people also learn to maintain, to practice good works for necessary uses that they be not unfruitful. You see, the example of taking care of Zenos and taking care of Apollos was a down-to-earth example of this idea of bearing fruit, of good works. You know, when a tree grows, let's say an apple tree grows in your yard, and, uh, after, and it starts to really bear fruit, does that tree personally, individually, not personally, it's not a person, but individually, does that tree have a need for its fruits, for itself? No, no. Its fruits are meant to support the life of others. And folks, God wants the gospel to bear fruit in your life so that it supports the lives of others in God's mission. You know, there is a, uh, a, a real theme here of, um, uh, of shared provision, but a shared purpose in verse 14. Do you see why he wants them to bear fruit? Why he wants them to do good works? Titus 3 verse 14 says that they be not unfruitful. What does Jesus say in John 15 about branches that do not bear fruit? They're not serving their purpose. And folks, do you understand that a, 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 a fuller understanding of the gospel, even according to this book of Titus in Titus chapter 2, is God saves you so that you work for him. So that you bear fruit. You see, the purpose of learning to behave in this way, uh, to let our people learn, is to ensure fruitfulness. There's a, there must have been a presence of unfruitful Cretan Christians, the opponents, because in Titus chapter 1 and verse 16, he describes the false teachers as they profess that they know God, but in works and fruits they deny Him. Being abominable and disobedient to every good work, reprobate, worthless, worthless. And he tells these 
those believers in Crete that they need to practice good works for necessary uses that they be not worthless. Worthless. So one who is connected to Christ in the scriptures here has the Spirit of God in him. Titus 3 verses 5 and 6. He bears then corresponding fruit. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the Spirit here does not save us because of our good works, but the Spirit then, through the Spirit, he will produce corresponding fruit. Let me show you where Paul speaks about this. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 9. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. In other words, the works of the Spirit that are, that are worked out in your life are these things. Goodness and righteousness and truth. Go with me to Colossians chapter 1. A very profound verse if you stop and think about what this means in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 6. Paul says in verse 5, The hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before, in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is in all the world, and what? And brings forth fruit, as it does also in you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God and truth. Colossians 1.10 That you might walk worthy of the Lord to all pleasing being what? Being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So this, this idea of good works in Titus chapter 3 that he said over and over and over again throughout this book. Now Paul shifts the picture here to talk about good works being fruit. Fruit that is rooted in what? Fruit that is rooted and the gospel. He wants these believers to be holistic Christians whose faith is exhibited in their good acts. In fact, look at this. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. God's grace that has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, to have our eyes fixed on Jesus appearing, his blessed hope. And verse 14, look, look what Paul says. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity, right? What if we just stopped there and we said, okay, I'm forgiven. But Jesus loves us so much, he gives us a purpose for living and a way to earn treasure in heaven for his glory. Look what else did he says. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and what? So from and purify to himself a peculiar or unique, a special people who are what? Zealous of good works. Folks, if Jesus has saved you, this passage tells us he has saved you to be a people who are passionate about bearing fruit, about serving others, about living in holiness in your individual life, but about serving others besides yourself. Because it's what our Savior did, isn't it? So Paul here is using this practical application here. It's like, it's like all throughout this book in Titus 1 verse 16 and Titus chapter 2 and 
verse 1 speaks out of things which are in accord or fitting with sound doctrine, and he describes how people are to be and to bear fruit. <coughs> he says in verse 5, uh, uh, young, young wives uh, uh, be trained by the older women so that the word of God is not dishonored, blaspheme. So that's beautiful. And verse 6, he talks about young men. And verse 7, he says, in all things, showing yourself a pattern, an example of good works. Your speech in verse 8, that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part, he who is in opposition to you, may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Servants, in verse 10, who adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. A people, in verse 14, who are zealous, passionate of good works. A people, in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, in their, uh, to, to, uh, to be ready to every good work. To be eager, enthusiastic about bearing fruit. In our community here, he's talking about our public life, in verses 1 and 2. Uh, he has said in verse 8, this is the faithful saying, these things I will that you affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God may be careful to maintain, to practice good works, to bear fruit. And he has said this again in verses 13 and 14. So it's like he has filled up the tank, here of gas, bear fruit in keeping with the gospel that's in you. And then he stops and, he's, and he stops at the gas station and says, I'm just going to pop that off again. And he says, bear fruit. Do good works. This is the purpose of the gospel. To ensure fruitfulness. To ensure fruitfulness. Because when Christ appeared, he communicated grace and gifts to enable his people to live in a very different way from the rest of the world. You know, there's lots of people out there who do a lot of good works, aren't they? Aren't there? Lots of people. And in Paul's day, there is a Cretan version of this. It was tinged with the philosophy of Crete. And good, good deeds were often done in order to receive back the praise of society's leaders. Have a statue made for yourself or something you donated to the community or whatever. And that's inferior, isn't it? Because these good deeds consist of being faithful to God and sacrificial service for others. So that people outside the faith community of Jesus Christ will become aware that who Christ is is real in those people's lives. The reality of Christ is real. And it goes beyond speaking, though speaking is the truth of God is, is, is crucial. It is speaking and being, doing, performing, so that God is glorified. And so the connector here with a shared purpose is that God's people are to involve themselves in the life-giving ministry of the gospel. Rather than like people in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, who are living for their own selves, teaching their own speculations, uh, living for greed. Living for greed. Why? Because Christ's atonement was for these very purposes on this earth. Christ died so that we adorn, so we take the good news, adorn the good news, silence opponents by the way we live. But finally, here in verse 15, there is a shared grace. A shared grace. He says in verse 15, all that are with me. So Paul had a team with him. And I guarantee they weren't sitting around just, uh, just playing rummy. They were there for the advancement of the gospel. They were strategizing. All that are with me salute you. Greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. 
There's a shared grace, a standing in Christ's grace. You know, I mentioned the the way the Corinthian church had elevated Apollos and tried to pit him against Paul, and Paul was very gracious about that. It doesn't ever tell us that Apollos was in with the Corinthians that way, that he agreed with them, uh, and I don't think he was. He was a man who was a, a man who fit the qualifications of a teacher in Scripture. Paul was very gracious. He sends his best. He sends his best. He's not in competition, in other words. And his concluding greeting is, greet those who love us in the faith, shows that there were people there who did not love Paul. There were people who resisted his apostolic teaching. Obviously, those who did not love them in the faith. And Paul says, greet those who love us in the faith. In his closing prayer there, grace be with you all, is a prayer for God's grace to be realized in his church. See, God's grace isn't just this static thing where he's just, he's a gracious God. And so that just leaves us where we're at. He forgives us because he's a gracious God, because he's a merciful God. But he does that to move us into service for him. He, 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 his grace is, is, is an empowering thing. And Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's God's grace. Grace is God's power, His strength, His favor on you to do His will. And so this is the prayer for God's grace to be realized in each believer's life and in the church as a whole. Notice he says, um, all that are with me salute you. Greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. In other words, this letter is to be read not just to Titus, but to the rest of the believers. And 2,000 years later, we can can join in with that um, prayer of Paul that grace is with us all. Grace be with you all. Paul expected this to be shared with the entire Cretan church, and we are, as we are reading it today, we're included in that. Paul asks that this grace continue its work in the life of all in the church on Crete. There is this idea of a shared family life in Christ. Real personal relationships with real brothers and sisters with a one-mindedness for the gospel, a mobilizing for the mission of Jesus Christ so that Jesus guides us in caring for each other and building each other up and partnering together, not just for our own benefit, but for those who he came to seek and save as well. To effectively partner together. To be the church that is sent. You know, when you leave these doors here, we are, in a certain sense, missionaries. We're probably not crossing cultures as much uh, like, a, like a missionary in another culture, another country. But we still bear that identical task of being a representative of Jesus Christ, an ambassador of Jesus Christ. There is a common mission to mobilize for, to give to, and to work for. As we close, I want to remind you that as individual believers, you have been joined to Jesus Christ. But as you have been joined to Jesus Christ, you've also been joined to a common group of people. And you've been joined to a common group of people who are to have a common identity and a common mission. 
Paul's churches were sharing in and they were brought to life by this life-giving vision of God's apostolic mission, the mission of the apostles to the ends of the earth that is still being perpetuated today. And do not ever forget that all the things that we share in Christ, the unity of the gospel, all the things that we share in Christ means that we are to share Christ together to the lost world. We come in here to hear the teaching of God's word. We don't come to just have fat minds. To have knowledge that puffs us up. We come to be changed to bear fruit. Because we have a mission. Outside of these doors. And we are a sent people. A people sent out. I mentioned last week. If you would begin thinking about a particular individual that you will begin to pray for and then you will begin to follow up with by getting together with that individual, perhaps taking out for breakfast or lunch or or, or doing an activity with them uh, that that you both enjoy for the purpose of building trust and and, and getting to know that person and listening to them and, and finding the cracks in their soul so that you can present the Lord Jesus Christ as their hope, as He is your hope. So you can share with them how the Lord Jesus has changed your life and taken you from your brokenness. And you can disciple that person as they become born again, made alive to the things of God so they can carry on that task. You see, somebody did it to you. Somebody brought it to you. People have impacted your life. People have been your spiritual fathers and mothers. And now it's time to do the same, to bear fruit. And this shared strategy, this shared provision, are we behind the things of God for the advancement of the gospel? The shared purpose, to be fruitful, it's what Jesus saved us to be. And the shared grace that we all stand brings this whole book together. Let's be people who are described in Titus 3, verse 14. Let ours also learn to maintain Good works for necessary uses that they be not unfruitful. Next week we're going to begin a study of the book of 1 Corinthians. And in order to do that, we're going to lay a little bit of background and introduction, looking in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, on Paul's ministry to the church there in Corinth. So I encourage you to read the first section there in the book of Acts. Uh, chapter 18, prepare your, your mind for the background of the book of 1 Corinthians, and then the following week we're going to jump in to the book of 1 Corinthians here and see that all that happened in the early church was not rosy, it was not pretty, but God was accomplishing his purposes through the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you have called.